Welcome to the Sit and Spin Holiday Spectacular. This is a fine Los Angeles tradition for, God, 30, 40 years now, I think it's been going on. And uh, 11? Oh, that's right, because we did the 10th last year. That's right. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, well, the first song we're going to do here with this uh, great band of people, uh, which I will introduce now just because they're here. David Silverman's going to be playing tuba. <laughs> Mr. Steve Postel on guitar. <laughs> Mr. Steve Deutsch on bass. <laughs> and the Reverend Scott Bredman on, uh, on, the, on the percussion. And uh, my daughter Fiona Stockdale is going to join us here too. <laughs> Um, there's a song that we did about two years ago. It was exactly two years ago, right about a year after Obama had been elected, and, uh, and it was called All I Want for Christmas is a Job. We got a lot of hits on it, uh, you know, comparatively, and uh, it did pretty well. And we were all thinking, oh, you know, we'll do this two years later. Everything will be great. It'll, uh, you know, things will get better. No. So we wrote a sequel to it. The first half is the same as it was, but then we go into a different second half. She's two years older. We're all two years older. We're all two years poorer. So um, the second half of it is really the inclusion of everyone. It's all we want for Christmas. So if anybody knows the song and wants to join in on the words, all we want for Christmas, on the second verse, we would love that. So um, here it is. I got bills in the mail, and bills sending faxes, bills from the government asking for taxes. I got Visa and Nordstrom's and water and power, calls from my creditors each waking hour. So what am I to do? Can't you help a guy get through? All I want for Christmas is a job. Something that might keep me on my feet. When I'm not gainfully employed, I get very paranoid. Wondering how my ends are gonna meet. All I want for Christmas is a job. You know there ain't too much I won't do. Oh, please, Santa, bring to me a nice new J-O-B. Make our Christmas wishes all come true. Dear Santa Claus, first, I stopped believing in you years ago, so I'm writing this in a postmodern spirit of irony. Second, I'm a teenager now, so I don't believe in anything, including postmodernism and irony. <laughs> well, it's Christmas time again, and my dad still doesn't have a job. Wow, shocking, ain't it? Now, to be fair, he did release a CD this year, Sure of Myself, available right now on Amazon.com. <laughs> and I think it sold about as many copies as Latoya Jackson's Salute to Cole Porter. <laughs> but at least he's trying, the big idiot. Hey, all his idiot friends are trying. What's your excuse, Santa? You're just a miserable, fat, corporate shill bought off by the Koch brothers and the AFL-CIO. 
I hope the protesters occupied the North Pole and roast Rudolph on a spit until his nose turns into a piece of coal. You want to bring the world something this year? Bring us the guarantee that my classmates and I aren't going to wind up in a community college with degrees in gas pumping. Got that? Got that in your bag of toys? I didn't think so, you capitalist bastard. All we want for Christmas is a job. A measly bone thrown for your fellow man. Some live in laps of luxury while we're in tents under a tree. Eating fancy feast right from the can. All we want for Christmas is a job. Hey now, Wall Street, this request from us to you. Make sure the tax you will have paid is more than that of Warren Buffett's made. Then all our Christmas wishes can come true. Look, we're on our bended knees. Look, it's just so much blood a stone can squeeze. Pop a few less champagne corks. Or we'll be using chopsticks instead of forks. Won't you help us just a bit? Don't make us vote for Newt or Mitt. Just be your gopher, be your schlepper. Just stop spraying us with pepper. Please make our Christmas wishes all come. True. Oh, yeah. Thank you. they will then be motivated to get married and have Jewish babies. <laughs> All Jewish outreach is in hopes of having more Jewish babies. <laughs> I've been to only one Chabad Shabbat, but moving into a neighborhood that had a Beit Chabad, which is Hebrew for Chabad house, um, that in a neighborhood that had one of those around the corner felt good. It felt like I was moving into a community. About two years ago, when I moved into my apartment, I was walking my little dog on our short walk route, just one time around the block. Sometimes we go on a longer walk, where we just amble aimlessly around the neighborhood, crossing streets with abandon. You know, we really lose ourselves in the magic of the walk. But on this day, it was a short walk, and we passed by the house. I was dressed super religiously. I was wearing a long skirt and long sleeves, and my long hair was pre-Brazilian blowout, so it was, there was no question about my Jewishness. <laughs> and to sort of push it over the top, 
I even had in my hands a tote bag from Temple Israel of Hollywood <laughs> with a star of David on the side. It was so Jewish. Um, like a magnet, the rabbi's wife did her outreachy thing. She pretended that she found my dog cute, and then she invited me to join the family for a Hanukkah celebration with latkes and donuts on a date to be determined. I was so in. But a few days later, I walked by the same house with the same dog, but this time I was dressed in jeans, these boots, and my hair was piled on top of my head, showing off the tattoo on the back of my neck, which says love in Hebrew. I smiled at the rabbi's wife, and I can't be certain, but I think I saw a look of horror cross her face as she quickly ushered her children into the house. I was no longer welcome at their Hanukkah celebration. I never received a Chabad-issued husband or brought forth Jewish children who would keep the traditions going. <laughs> Within the last year, the Chabad house has really started to fall apart. First, the white picket fence started to break down and pieces were strewn across the lawn that had dried and died. And the car in the driveway always looked at it as though it had been involved in a murder or a drive-by. <laughs> and then I stopped seeing the children and the wife and soon there were only men in undershirts hanging out on the stained mattress that lay on the deck. To my horror, I think my neighborhood Chabad house had become a crack den. <laughs> so, okay, the Chabadnets must have moved out, right? They must have, but, but then, uh, around November, the mobile menorahs showed up on the lawn, ostensibly to be placed atop the murder mobile and rolled out at the end of the month. So it's very confusing. I've never smoked crack. Um, <laughs> It's hard to believe, but, um, but I can't help but wonder what a crack den Chabad Hanukkah might be like. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I've never wanted to be a part of a Chabad celebration more. It's so mysterious and creepy. I googled, what does it feel like to smoke crack? <laughs> While I was at the clinic where I treat patients. Um, Meg Sefor told me that it feels like being in love and having the feeling that everything is beautiful. What more could you want from a holiday? She also points out that it's super addictive. I can't afford groceries, so I can't add crack to the shopping list. <laughs> Plus, I don't want the other crack-associated things to deal with, you know, bad breath and low motivation to complete my PhD. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Law & Order SVU, a lot of it. Hulu has every episode that has ever aired. <laughs> And I watched them all, just clicking play next episode as one ends. I even received a message of concern from Hulu once. <laughs> asking, you've been watching videos for three hours. Do you want to take a break? <laughs> no, thank you, Hulu. I haven't seen enough sadness yet. I need more. So here's my Law & Order Yahoo-inspired fantasy about Hanukkah at Crack House Chabad. The evening will start with latkes and candle lighting, of course. Maybe a little dreidel game, more latkes. Then the kids will go to sleep, and the adults will recite a blessing over our bodies and what goes into them. And then we smoke. <laughs> I imagine that I would probably cough, which would be so embarrassing, but then I'd make eye contact with the kindly rabbi and all my shame would just melt away. <laughs> then the euphoria, maybe dancing, probably more dreidel, We'd all laugh. We'd all laugh, repeating, a great miracle happened there, no here, no there. Maybe, 
Maybe I'd actually meet my husband. I mean, this isn't a Chabad-specific fantasy, by the way. I often go into social situations wondering if my husband might be in the room. <laughs> so far, he hasn't been. Um, then more crack, because this, like many Jewish holidays, is about abundance, about the miracle. <laughs> the miracle of having enough. And since I read that the high only lasts about 20 minutes, I imagine that care would be taken to make sure that all guests remained happy. The party would continue, probably, possibly, maybe it would end in a loosely consensual sex act. And then I would go home. <laughs> Crack House Chabad Hanukkah will probably never happen. There was a moving truck in front of the house today signaling an end to an era. <laughs> you guys got so attached. Um, Plus, despite my curiosity, I would probably turn down an invitation to a party that would likely end in religiously sanctioned rape. <laughs> Assuming I'd be invited, which of course I would never be invited because I have a tattoo. Anyway, a girl can dream. I guess Danielle is married by now. A few months ago, I spotted her sweaty ass, sporting a crushed, dirty paper tiara, slamming mojito shots and screaming, this is my jam, bitches! In reference, of course, to Katy Perry's, I wanna see your peacock cock cock, your peacock cock. <laughs> While her equally raunchy girlfriends fucked the air and whistled. <laughs> Where was I? At a cousin's wedding in South Carolina? and airport Applebee's with half-off sliders and ranch. <laughs> a boozy secretary's birthday bash? No, I'm at Akbar in the deliciously chill east side of LA. I do not know Danielle, yet. Akbar is my favorite bar in LA. I'm there way too much. I'm probably there now. Um, <laughs> It, it describes itself as a neighborhood oasis, and it's on the corner of Sunset and Fountain, right next to McDonald's. The faux Moroccan artwork and wickedly ornate columns behind the mirrored bar are in brilliant contrast to the sweet and easy bartenders and casual atmosphere. In the front room, there are autographed headshots of everyone from Drew Barrymore to Edith Massey to Alex Trebek to Fred Schneider. Imagine having a cocktail with that foursome and you have an idea of what Akbar could be. Um, on Monday nights, it's Rock Steady Lounge with dubstep and, and ska-loving hipsters giving Boyle Heights realness. On, 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 on Wednesdays, it's craft night. You can make macaroni owl coasters and beaded ashtrays while sniffing nag champa and hippie meat. And while I love and embrace that everyone is invited to my favorite bar, let's face it, it's a gay bar. Um, it's not your typical twink, tweakin', gaga freaknik, but come on, no straight bar would have Queen Carlotta's headshot ensconced in gold. <laughs> a few months ago, I found myself headed down to Akbar on a Friday night. I uh, had just seen some wretched theater and needed to drink it off. 
Or, you know, maybe the play was great. Who cares? I needed a cocktail. Um, so I walked up to my gorgeous and familiar watery hole, admiring the mid-60s jagged rock siding and green neon sign, scores of smoking bon vivants and dilettantes and bears were clustered together, <laughs> chirping and laughing as I approached. And after chatting up the sidewalk, giving compliments and smiles, whatever, I, I entered the bar. It was packed. The energy in the front room was wild, untamed. Boys had their shirts off, and the bartenders were doing shots with the bar backs, and lesbians were being irresponsible. <laughs> And it was only 11, so it was gonna be a doozy. So I, I pushed my way through the nasty jungle of naked and saddled up to the bar. I tried to, I tried to stand in one place, but I could barely keep my footing. And just before I could say, Grey Goose and Soda, I felt a horrifically violent stab to my kidneys. Holy shit, someone's harvesting my organs. <laughs> I was weak in the knees with pain, shock. I, just before I could turn around, I heard a piercing shriek that sounded like, like a parrot getting fisted. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm drunk, exclaimed this thing. A vision in wet seal who, <laughs> who smelled like Cancun and ham. Wow, that, that really hurt, I said. She replied, I don't know how that happened. And then she fell down. <laughs> and several of us picked her back up and tried to remount her tiara on top of her shellacked mess of offensive hair, stood her back upright in heels that she could not handle. And, and instead of saying like, thank you, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, or I am awful, um, she just says, you boys are so cute, and runs away. Well, I didn't really think much of it. I mean, she's drunk, it's crowded, it happens. So I get my vodka soda, I head towards the back room, in the mood for the dance floor. Uh, on my way, I run into friends and have important conversations about nothing, forgetting all about the wasted little Midori and mascara mess that elbow raped my kidneys. The DJ is playing Grace Jones and Sylvester and De La Soul and The Darkness. I mean, this is awesome. I'm grinding and sweating and losing my mind and making choices with no apologies. <laughs> I mean, at this moment, everything is beautiful. And then all of a sudden, the DJ plays Katy Perry. Yeah. Okay, all right, well, not for me. Now, you know, there's something for everyone at the neighborhood oasis, and when I hear Katy Perry, it's just time to get a new drink. So I attempt to leave the floor, and get, I get clotheslined by a gaggle of screaming harpies. This is my jam, bitches! exclaims an all-too-familiar voice. It's her, and, and she's brought more of her kind. Oh my god, it's you, from the other bar. Well, actually, I was just in the other room, but that's fine, I mutter. And uh, I, 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 you know, I, I try to get away from her and her kick line of sweaty blowjob machines and pumps. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm Danielle. What's your name? You're so cute. Again with the cute thing. And, and she didn't say it like, damn, you're hot, good for you, or like, even like, you're mildly attractive, best of luck tonight. 
No, no. She said it like she was at the fucking zoo. Like she was looking at me like I was a goddamn billy goat or a baby fish. And another girl chimed in with, Danielle, you should make out with him. This is your night. Yeah, yeah, this is Danielle's bachelorette party. And she's gonna celebrate her impending marriage by getting blackout plowed on hypnotic, shaking her dumb party tits to the rhythms of Katy Perry, and assuming familiarity with the gays because they're cute. Before I could leave her clutches, she burped choice lines at me like, you'd love my brother. And um, doesn't my bump it look ferocious? <laughs> and, okay, for, for a long time, I used to have a major problem with bachelorette parties at gay bars. I, I'm, not, I'm not the first person to say this, but, but it's like, we, you know, we can't get married in most places. And so please don't swing it in our faces at our bars. <laughs> however, however, seriously, I, I have plenty of wonderful straight friends who should be allowed to celebrate this huge occasion wherever, however they want. So, you know, and the reason that I love Akbar is that it welcomes all kinds of people. So, you know, it's, it's a neighborhood fucking oasis, remember? So, yay, everybody. So I don't resent Danielle because she's a straight girl celebrating her wedding with her girlfriends. I resent her because she's a drunk, condescending asshole. Welcome to Akbar. Grab a cocktail. Congratulations. Just don't call us cute. One, two, October 14th, 1751. <laughs> Dear Santa Claus, I have been a good boy and have studied with diligence. Will you please bring me a harpsichord or a violin? My parents' slaves will leave you milk and cookies. <laughs> Yours most humbly, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> November 21st, 1751. Dear Thomas, precocious young man, I have chosen a Cremona violin that I think will be to your liking. Practice, but do not limit yourself to musical endeavors. Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. <laughs> September 3rd, 1760. Dear Santa Claus, how are you able to bring toys to all children of the globe? And given the difficult moral assignations, how does one choose between naughty and nice? As Lawrence Stern writes, morals were too essential to the happiness of man to be risked on the uncertain combinations of the head. Your affectionate friend, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> October 18th, 1760. My dear learned Thomas, in answer to your first query, there is a time-space fissure outside the North Pole which allows me to quantum flux between multiple dimensions while delivering presence in this plane of existence. As for morality, Stern did indeed write, even the clearest and most exalted understandings amongst us 
find ourselves puzzled and at a loss in almost every cranny of nature's works. In terms of naughty or nice, however, I'm afraid it's just the toss of a coin. <laughs> it saves time, and the sooner children learn to deal with an unfair universe, the better. <laughs> Take care, Santa Claus. April 23rd, 1775. Dear Santa, Within the week, we have received the unhappy news of deadly action between the King's troops and our brethren at Lexington in Middlesex County, Massachusetts. An official declaration to assert our independence from Britain is necessary, but my lowly skills as a lawyer are ill-suited to such revolutionary dogma. Also, I just invented a spherical sundial. Your friend and humble servant... Thomas, August 2nd, 1775. Dear Thomas, for your declaration, try a catchy opening line like, when in the course of human events, <laughs> or we're out of here, or suck on our hot freedom, you pompous jackasses, or words to that effect. The rest will write itself. Also, when you reorganize the colonies into some overarching governmental body, consider a bicameral system with states represented equally and proportionally. Good luck, Santa. June 22nd, 1787. Dear Santa, a year has passed since Maria Cosway departed Paris for London. Fortunately, there is the presence of my newly arrived daughter, Polly, and 14-year-old Sally Hemings, who has accompanied her from Virginia. Abigail Adams thinks Miss Hemings a mere child, but she strikes me mature beyond her years and quite fetching. In addition, I recently invented a machine for mixing the yolk of an egg within its shell and a walking stick, which turns into a slightly larger walking stick. Your most obedient and humble servant, Thomas. July 12, 1787. Dear Thomas, regarding Miss Hemmings, don't. <laughs> Just don't. As a friend, I cannot stress this highly enough. Santa. P.S. Don't. August 28, 1787. Dear Santa, oh, how I am bedeviled by negress flesh. As if gripped in a tropical delirium, Miss Hemming's loins exude a perfumed composite of sweat and subjugation that cannot be wrong because its tactility feels so right. With head and heart in conflict, I surrender all logic. Your most troubled friend and unworthy servant, Thomas. October 7th, 1787. Dear Thomas, I am the last to judge your lustful dalliance. Once, when Mrs. Claus was away visiting cousins, I found splendor in the arms of Milton, an elf who worked in the spinning top department. He was a raging inferno, and his smallness and height did not match the rest of him, if you know what I mean. And I think you do.
Sure, the unions tried to bring me up on charges, but who's going to mass produce toys if I'm in jail? Asians? Please. Santa. September 5th, 1800. Dear Santa, the presidential campaign rages against my wily adversary, John Adams, and I am attacked as atheist and Jacobin. One newspaper warns, quote, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will be openly taught and practiced, and the soil will be soaked with blood, end quote, should I emerge victorious. I can only hope future generations will not be so blinded by party affiliations. <laughs> I plan to rebuild Monticello and await contractors to give me an estimate. They still have not arrived. In the meantime, I design a blanket with sleeves <laughs> which can be worn to provide warmth and comfort. Your submissive and most acquiescent squire, Thomas. November 11th, 1800. Dear Thomas, here are some tips on dealing with contractors. First, get a detailed written contract. Second, plan for problems like delays and bad weather. Third, always budget additional money for extras. When Mrs. Claus and I decided to put a wet bar in our rec room, we worked with a contractor and a specialty dealer to get the bar dismantled and installed properly with retro fittings. It cost more, but was worth it. Also, send me a prototype of the sleeved blanket. I may know how to market it. Santa. February 6th, 1808. Dear Santa, nine months more will relieve me from a drudgery to which I am no longer equal as president. The Embargo Act has proven calamitous, and I, who champion states' rights, have laid the template for ever-expanding federal powers. Still awaiting the contractors, I give them one more year. <laughs> Your most servile and brow-beaten factotum, Thomas. March 15th, 1808. Thomas, boo-hoo, cry me a frozen river. You have problems? It's March, and already I'm dealing with manufacturers, downsizing, and toy manipulation. Can't take the heat? Get away from the 10-plate stove. Santa. March 24th, 1808. Dearest Thomas, deepest apologies for my last letter. As you know, after the holiday season, I lose about 50 pounds, and my metabolism goes straight to hell. I also have pains in my back and right shoulder, which turn out to be gallstones. Ho, ho, ho. Santa, August 2nd, 1815. Dear Santa, I had a most remarkable dream of late in which Jesus Christ and I are engaged in a game of backgammon. He cheats and is aware I have witnessed his deception, but I remain silent. Later, I am naked in front of the Continental Congress. What does this mean? Your most sincerely acquiescent and docile Chamberlain, Thomas. September 23rd, 1815. Dear Thomas, faith is often difficult to reconcile with physical being. I am creating my own religion based on the central precept of an evil galactic overlord who has banished souls into volcanoes on Earth <laughs> and blown them up with powerful explosives. We'll send literature. Bright day 
Santa. <laughs> November 17th, 1825. Dear Santa, as I behold precious Monticello, I am drawn to former events and old friends. Will humankind know or care what we have done? I take my Cremona violin in hand and hail you repeatedly with pledges of steadfast esteem and respect. The Hermit of Monticello, Thomas. December 25th, 1825. Dear Thomas, you are the lucky one. I have to endure generation after generation asking for material goods, exhibiting the same greed, thinking they are brighter, more sophisticated, invoking my name without belief or understanding. One must persevere. Eternally yours, Santa. Orthodox Jewish world. Why, yes, there are enough blessings in our religion to warrant a bee. <laughs> blessings for things like turnips, rainbows, hot people, and of course, midgets. The winning question was, what is the longest after meal blessing of the year? It's Hanukkah on Sabbath. <laughs> blessings are my jam. My favorite one being Asher Yatsar. It is said after taking a shit to thank God for all of your functioning holes. <laughs> Let us appreciate our holes and the holes of others. Amen. The blessing bee was the only thing I ever won in school, so Hanukkah is a point of pride holiday for me. But as far as Jewish holidays goes, it's pretty low ranking. It is none of the public drunkenness and rape stories of Purim, or the family drunkenness and flashy goat sacrifices of Passover. The only reason Gentiles know anything about it is because it usually falls around Christmas and Jews love to fit in. <laughs> Which is strange, seeing as how Hanukkah is an anti-assimilation stick-to-your-roots holiday. Get it together, Jews! Gift-giving has no place in this holiday. Hanukkah is about lighting candles and eating a shit ton of oily foods. <laughs> if my white Jew school didn't allow us to say Jesus or Christmas because of all the Christian persecution they faced in Europe, then they should have shunned getting gifts or money, which I think we could all agree is the greatest gift. <laughs> but I get it. Christmas, oh, I'm sorry, Kratzmach, is intoxicating. When we moved to the Americas from Iran without the, the Christian persecution baggage, my mom embraced Christmas, especially the Hollywood Christmas parade, instilling a love for celebrity and Christmas inside me. <laughs> She loves all things Christmas. She begged me to see Elf and couldn't stop singing Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle All the Way Home. <laughs> so unlike my classmates, I got to watch Christmas movies and enjoy Christmas carols, but received no gifts or money, which my parents said didn't have anything to do with Hanukkah. But like the Jews of yesteryears, I wanted to fit in. When I graduated high school, I moved to Israel for a year, 
away from my parents, I could finally know what it means to enjoy Hanukkah ensconced with white Jews. Woo! Gifts and donuts! <laughs> Plus, the story of Hanukkah took place in Israel, so it seemed much more prescient. The mighty Assyrian Greek army looted the Second Temple and tried to outlaw kosher and circumcision. The Jews were all, hells no, we love circumcised peen. <laughs> and so Judah the Maccabee led the revolt, nailing it and won back the temple. But the temple was defiled, and all of the olive oil that lit our eternal Jew light menorah was tainted. They found one tiny jug of untouched oil, which should have lasted one night. But miracles of miracles, it lasted eight nights. Which is why we eat oily foods like donuts and latkes. When I eat donuts, I am just honoring my ancestors. In Israel, I also learned of other Hanukkah heroes. Heroes like Judith, who defeated the mighty Holy Farnas, a general in the Assyrian army. She was a hot-ass Jew widow who went with her handmaiden, who was also a baller, to his tent outside of their siege town. She seduced him with wines and cheeses, telling him her goat cheese was the best in all the land. And when he passed out drunk, she cut off his head with his own sword, thus vanquishing our enemies. Another big victory for the Jews via vaginas. My school in Israel was very religious, in a very religious neighborhood in Jerusalem. Naturally, I befriended the girls who watched movies, drank every night, whilst blowing boys from the yeshiva and bar bathrooms. <laughs> I, on the other hand, was blowing every sandwich and chocolate bar in the city and excelling at swallowing. <laughs> it was my first time away from home where my mother would not let me eat anything bad, so the freedom to eat any and all foods was heaven. I did go overboard, and by Hanukkah, I had gained the freshman 43. <laughs> I didn't notice how much weight I was ga gaining due to the hideous tent-like skirts we wore to school. My weight problem hit me when I was at a sandwich shop mid-Hanukkah. The, the Persian man behind the counter, who was unaware of my Persianness and my Farsi skills, kept saying in Farsi, hey little bear, what do you want? I bet everything, because you are a bear. <laughs> Which in Farsi is like saying pig. So I told him, fried onions, fried eggplant, some hummus, some tuna, maybe two scallions, some mayo, and like the biggest baguette you have. I left, the I left and deep-throated that motherfucking sandwich on the way to the bus stop. <laughs> I got on the bus and noticed all the homes had menorahs in the windows. No Christmas light fanfare like I was used to, just quiet darkness and candles. Depression and self-loathing love mood lighting. <laughs> The accordion bus was relatively empty, just me, an old woman, a religious dude, an Arab man, and a soldier. As I looked around the bus, reeking of tuna and scallions at this motley crew, Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. came on the loudspeaker, and we all listened together. Everyone enmeshed in their own lives, so separate from each other, but sharing a love for this land. I got back to the dorm feeling a part of something. I lit my candles, putting the bear incident behind me, and then I heard the screams. The Orthodox man who stood outside our window and masturbated was back. <laughs> and seeing as how it was the Festival of Lights, this was the most illuminated he had ever been. <laughs> All the girls were gathered around saying, ah, so gross, it's so disgusting. I, on the other hand, felt different. I will now read an excerpt I wrote on that night in my brain diary. 
dear Brain Diary. He's back! Some of the girls say they even saw his penis. Must be nice to see an actual penis. With oh. all the food BJs, no boys are looking my way for real BJs. I wish they would move and let me look, but I don't want to look like a perv. Quick, say something. Ew, so gross. You should probably move away from the window. I don't know why he does it. Oh, gross. <laughs> but of course I know why he does it. He, like me, is a perv and wanted us to watch, which I think it would be polite for us to watch. <laughs> Great diary. I found a place where I belong with people I don't belong with. I'm going to go eat a whole watermelon now. <laughs> the end. After Israel, I decided, fuck fitting in. I will be more like Judith in the Maccabees. I will be true to myself and find others who get it. Now, every year on Hanukkah, I celebrate my religion and my freaky ass friends. Don't let yourself go. Everybody cry. Everybody hurt sometimes. My shrink sees me in an underground silo near San Diego's Fort Pendleton Army Base. My AFTRA health coverage said she was best suited for me because she deals with post-traumatic stress syndrome, usually military combatants who have come back from war. I am a comedian in LA living the horror of corporate culture. My options are to write and act on shows that have no, let me repeat this, no connection to reality whatsoever. <laughs> the Occupy movements are not dealt with on Whitney or Two Broke Girls. Two and a half men are not dealing with food, shortage, food shortages around the world and in Los Angeles. And Happy Endings is shying away from the global financial meltdown and Goldman Sachs' involvement in it. Modern Family hasn't had an episode yet where one of them has been brutalized by the police for exercising their constitutional right to assemble. Fact is, there is not much dissent among artists at all in this town. Everyone needs to make money, and long ago they have sold their souls to the man so they can have a house with a dog and a pool and a kid. <laughs> They can't risk it, nor do they have the incentive to. Revolution in Hollywood is dead. I would like to see the rising consciousness of class warfare seep into television in Hollywood, like a woman having to guess the price of the Iraq war on The Price is Right. <laughs> The curtain opens, and instead of a fridge, it's fucking carnage. <laughs> Men 
women and children bleeding on the stage at CBS. And the woman is jumping up and down, trying to guess the price of the Iraq war. I don't know! I don't know! The audience is yelling, 20 billion! 20 billion! A vet gets up from the audience and screams, you can't put a price on it! Don't fucking guess and play their fucking game! I lost everybody! Then the woman from Oklahoma guesses $350. They always guess $350. The disconnect from television to reality has never been greater. Television as diversion is boring and flaccid. Fear Factor is now back on the schedule with people swallowing bugs. What if people on Fear Factor were challenging the corporate bullies who were responsible for the slaughter of the environment? Instead of eating bugs, we see people gathering in Durban, South Africa to forcefully demand change so maybe, just maybe, the children of the world will have a fucking world to live in. Joe Rogan would offer them a bug to eat. <laughs> but they would grab the bug and say, this is one of the species that will be extinct in a few years if we don't do something. And Rogan says, come on, give me a what what and eat the bug, bitch. And the protesters kill Rogan, end of show. I live in, I live in North Hollywood, typing this nervously, drinking strong coffee, hearing sirens and helicopters outside. This is no time for inner peace and yoga and aligning myself. <laughs> I have just tweeted jokes and a call to arms, and I am reading about protesters closing ports and gathering to stop foreclosures. Real people in real scary situations with tremendous courage. I am a computer revolutionary for the most part, I have been down to four protests um, for the Occupy movement in New York and LA, but I am scared of going to jail, of being hit. My career is just starting to take off, and I, and I have five lovely cats and a girlfriend, and I like to watch the Giants play football and eat sweets and power walk and think about how funny I am. <laughs> and how things are going good and there are more checks coming and people adore me and I want to be famous, so famous, so famous and loved and loved. I am scared of the police state, of being monitored on the computer for dissent by Homeland Security, the CIA, my manager and agent. 
I want to have a point of view in my comedy, stand up for what I believe in, feel people's pain and my own, not just talk about my dick on stage and cliches and stereotypes that help foster more unconscious behavior in the uneducated masses. I see myself as having followers. Twitter says I have followers. So I have to lead them. I see my shrink not in a silo near Fort Pendleton Army Base, but in a small office building on Whitsitt. <laughs> Here in the valley. Lynn Weinberg is my shrink, and she helps me tame my awful fears and wanton desires so I may be a law-abiding citizen reliable, clean and sober, a straight arrow who is funny and truthful. The rain has stopped, always a drag when the rain stops in LA, because the sun is such a lie out here. The malfeasance, the moral decay that happens in the bright sunshine seems to be a contradiction of immense proportions. <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous weather is where the murder of the soul takes place. <laughs> but, it's the but it's the holidays at the Grove and Apple Store and people who see shrinks and have dogs and who work on shows are bustling to and fro. So who am I to cast aspersions on this town? All I have to do is calm down from all this coffee and eat and stretch and get away from the computer and stop reading about all the protests and pain and fear and go outside into the sun and feed squirrels and don't look at my fucking phone for an hour. The phone brings the computer and my followers and all the horror with me into the park or coffee shop. All the people are on their phones and computers in shops and parks, but not me, not today. It's just squirrels and light. Squirrels and light. Squirrels and light. This Occupy Wall Street thing is not my fight. I am too old for this shit. My fight is just to be famous and handsome and smart and rich and happy and lovely in a moment-to-moment -moment battle with the evil that lives in me from my childhood. <clears throat> the negative voices instilled in me by society are my fight. I have to be fun and buoyant for the people around me. And I, most of all, have to love myself. Love myself so I am not vicious to myself. I can't save the goddamn world, man. I can't save the goddamn world. Balance, balance is the key. Yoga, alignment, anger, joy, anger, joy.
Homeland Security can suck me. Police brutality can suck me. The 1% can suck me. I will be happy and bouncy today. Throwing kindness like Molotov cocktails to my followers. This piece is at 1,141 words now. I was told 1,200 words by the powers that be because it was a full show. But I bet there are gonna be cocksuckers who go way over that. But I play by the rules because of my shrink, Lynn Weinberg, in the valley. salt flats in Utah out by the Bonneville racetracks where they set world speed records and human beings can get as close to flying like angels without ever leaving the ground. Wouldn't it just blow your mind if I told you this is my holiday story about how I set the first world speed racer record? It's not. <laughs> I just learned to drive out there because you can go for miles and miles without hitting anything. My dad is very practical. The first time I went to the DMV, I was 13 years old, and they told me I had to come back in three years. My birthday is in November, so all I wanted for Christmas when I turned 16 was a driver's license. To me, a driver's license meant I could finally achieve my big dream to leave Salt Lake City. <laughs> so I learned to drive in the salt flats in Utah. I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it's amazing. The earth sparkles. It's covered in salt crystals. It's like an ocean, enormous, waveless, silent ocean. The only problem with learning to drive out there is that there's these mirages, pools of water rise up and disappear as you go. It's a bit disconcerting, and your eyes play tricks on you out there. Every once in a while, you'll see uh, sun-bleached bones. Could be antelope, could be human. Hard to tell. A lot of people think the salt flats are haunted. Tons of people died out there in the 1800s trying to get to Oregon or California. Nowadays they find bodies, but they probably didn't die out there. They are usually murder victims from Wendover, Reno, or Vegas. They're just dumped there. Not very Christmassy, I know, but trust me, we'll get there. People who spend time in the salt flats have seen and heard dead people walking around. The Mormons call them angels. Everybody in Utah sees angels and ghosts. I don't really believe in ghosts or angels. I want to. Maybe that's enough. There's one ghost I really wanted to see. My mother. She died 20 years ago. And I've never seen her. Our old neighbor told us that my mother came to visit after my mom died. And my dad and I don't really believe this. Because, first of all, um, 
we moved after my mom died, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense because my mom was a really smart lady, so I think she could have figured out that we moved. <laughs> and then secondly, why would she visit the crazy, wacky neighbor um, over her husband or her children, you know? It just doesn't make sense. We're very practical. <laughs> Since I got my license around this time of year and I took my first long road trip over Christmas break, my mom let me take the car, sent me off on my first solo adventure to pick up my sister in San Francisco. But the only reason I got to go was that I had to promise I would be home for Christmas. So around this time of year, I feel the pull and pressure to go home for Christmas. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back, right? When I was younger, I felt a lot of pressure to live up to my family's expectations, which revolved around the fact that no matter where I go in life, on a car or a plane, I would ultimately, sometime in the future, always come home to Zion. That's what Mormons call Utah. And I get married, and then I have kids, and then I die in the land of salt flats and silent, waveless oceans. That was the expectation, anyway. I'm from a big family. My family's lived all over the world, but now they're all married, and they all have kids, and they all live in Zion, except me. At times, this pull to come home for Christmas feels like a burden to me, kind of. But I miss the salt flats. When I do go home, I like the first thing I always do is I drive out into the center of the sparkling ocean, and I get out of my car and I do snow angels in the salt. It's just a ritual that I like to do to mark it, to show that I was there. Not too long ago, I was out there all alone. The mirages don't bother me anymore. I like to drive really fast, shattering the pools of nothing. In the center, I lay in the salt, and I waved my arms and legs, and then I saw this giant star in the sky. And just like in the Bible, this star stretched down, pointing at a spot in the horizon, and then the star just darted across the sky and disappeared. Okay, now wouldn't it just totally blow your mind if I told you this is my holiday story about how I've met an alien? <laughs> it's not. But... It's per further out in the desert. There's an army base there called the Dugway Proving Ground. So the truth is that star is probably a little creepier than a UFO. That's where they develop and dispose of chemical and biological weapons. I must have been closer to the base than I wanted to be, so I decided to head back home. And that's when I saw the woman. She was just wandering out alone in the desert. At first I thought my eyes must be playing tricks on me, but she was definitely there. And she told me she was following the star to try to get home. And she said she was an angel. And she was dragging her wings on the ground because she liked the way the salt felt on the tip of her wings. And I thought, I thought angels don't have wings. And she said, oh, you must be Mormon. Mormon, <laughs> angels, Mormon angels don't have wings. They just look like people. And I told her, well, I'm a very bad Mormon. And she just smiled and said, oh, OK, well, then. You just have to be yourself. Her name was Moana. Moana means ocean in Maori. I don't remember how I knew that was her name, but that's also my mother's name. And I should probably tell you at this point that I was on acid when I saw her. <laughs> but it really happened. My husband tells me that I, I shouldn't tell acid story anymore because it's unprofessional. But I've been reading the Steve Jobs biography, and you know he said that taking LSD was one of the most important things he's ever done. Ever done. It made him see the world in a whole new way and figure out who he really was. Of course, Steve Jobs created something that's changed the way we see the world forever, and I haven't done that yet. 
But wouldn't it just blow your mind if this is the holiday story where I tell you I saw Steve Jobs' ghost? <laughs> it's not. I don't believe in ghosts, but I want to. I mean, maybe that's enough. Still, after I saw this woman named Moana in the Salt Flats, I drove home for Christmas, and my dad was really happy to see me. And I didn't tell him I was coming, so there was no big expectation about me being there. After so many years of me saying to him, I'm an artist. I don't want kids. I don't want to live in Zion, my dad says to me every year, if you can make it, we'd be happy to see you. If you can't, it's fine. He's very practical. Perhaps that's what's what he's always said to me, but I could only hear the expectations, be like me. But perhaps all along he was just saying, be yourself. I don't know. I don't believe in angels, but I want to. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains and the mountains in reply echoing their joyous strains gloria in excelsis day sing along gloria in excelsis day I don't bring this up so you'll applaud me, though if that does happen, you will have been right. <laughs> Not long ago, I had the honor to work on a film about an arguably pretend religion called Purisphere, named Bright Day. I know, and I agree. In the course of doing a mock expose on a super fake faith, I began, or perhaps continue, uh, continued, to look at established religions with an equally critical eye, and found myself saying, wow, what ridiculous, implausible, illogical, overwrought, and unnecessary fairy tales the adherents to that religion unquestioningly accept and pass on to their children. I've been reading my Bible a lot lately. You may have assumed just then that I've been reading my Bible a lot lately because I'm better than you. <laughs> While accurate, it is not the only reason. <laughs> I was, in fact, reading my Bible to look up the nativity story in order to tell the world's, world's worst and most convoluted version of it for a totally different comedy show. I found, however, upon referring to the original text that my work had largely been done for me. <laughs> you see, I've been reading my Bible a lot lately, and I'm afraid I've found some plot holes. <laughs> Given the season, let us turn our attention to the story of Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ. The story we all know, foretold by an angel in a dream, the baby Jesus born of a virgin in a manger because there was no room in the inn, wrapped in swaddling clothes, attended by wise men, shepherds, and or three or more kings, frankincense, myrrh, etc., doesn't really appear in the Bible, not in so concise a form anyway. In fact, the details are scant, and I suspect some blanks have been filled in in post. <laughs> And when you read what is actually there, it doesn't exactly track. Proper biblical and historical scholars take issue with the timeline, citing numerous anachronisms, such as uh, that the census that Mary and Joseph are returning to Bethlehem to take part in doesn't coincide with the life of, much less the rule of, King Herod, who it seems has very little, if anything, to do with Herod's the store. <laughs> 
I don't know or care about any of that. My issue is simple, petty, some may say. You needn't know the history of the day to find these things questionable. You need only refer to the original source material. I will read, for the most part, from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. For the normal people among you, this will be review. For the Catholics, you may finally begin to understand some of this. And for the Jews, get a pen. Matthew chapter 1, 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous, hang on, objection, sustained, husband. Bible. Bible, you just said engaged, and before they lived together. Immediately thereafter, you said husband. What are you leaving out? And which is it? Is Joseph Mary's husband or her fiancé? And Bible, are you asking us to believe that Mary became pregnant without Joseph's help before marrying Joseph, and Joseph married Mary anyway? Bible, please. In verses 22 and 23, we read, All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, it says, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This strikes me as defensive in two ways. First, it appeals to the past for its authenticity and authority, as if to say, of course this crazy story is true, someone else mentioned it before. And second, <laughs> and second, it is, it is as though the virgin birth is so unlikely a story, so difficult to swallow, so impossible to believe, that even the Bible begins the tale by saying, look. <laughs> Which is the first century, century equivalent of saying, man, I, I mean, <laughs> look, man, I, I, it's not even my, I, I'm not even the, I think Micah said it or something. <laughs> Later in this story, wise men had come to Jerusalem from the east following a star, seeking to honor the child who had been born king of the Jews. The actual king, Herod, was threatened by this. And in chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, we read, then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. He, then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may, go, I may also go and pay him homage. But he didn't want to pay him homage. He wanted him dead. Meanwhile, <laughs> the wise men set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Wait, warned in a dream? They stopped to sleep? <laughs> Curious how far Jerusalem is from Bethlehem? I Google mapped it. <laughs> Six miles. <laughs> I guess being wise must be exhausting. <laughs> Six miles. Oh, and they left for their own country by another road? No, no way. They were from the east, they went east. And if you think I'm wrong, if for a moment you believe that they faked out Herod by walking an hour south before hanging a left, I remind you that these guys stopped for a nap during a two-hour walk at the end of which they believed they would make the acquaintance of the Son of God. <laughs> they walked east. They walked east. 
If I were those guys, if I had had that dream, I would have said to the angel, these dreams are great, thank you. Everybody loves the dreams. One thing, though, why did you send us to Herod's, the castle, not the store, in the first place? Could that dream not have happened one night earlier and you said, guys, avoid Herod? I admit it is possible that I may be being too hard on the shepherds, wise men, kings, and or magi. They didn't exactly have it easy. I mean, have you ever tried to follow a star? It's hard. They move quickly and are often airplanes. What's more, it must have been just a nerve-wracking time to be alive, counting down to zero BC, not knowing what the future held. Though the Bible contains considerable overlap of other well-known stories, the nativity is only told in two of the four Gospels. Mark and John chose not to include it. I imagine a conversation wherein their editors were like, love everything you got, the miracles, two fish, five loaves, feeding 5,000 people, walking on water, all of it, love it. But uh, don't you guys want to include the nativity, you know, Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, and Mark and John being like, man, look... The fact that all the stories in the Bible don't agree, that they don't match up, doesn't bother me. In fact, I believe that's the major pitfall many religions face, stalwartly, defensively insisting they're the only ones with all the answers. I believe there's wisdom in many of the world's faiths, even Purisphere. And whether or not the Bible is the infallible, inspired word of God, which it is not, it has a lot to offer. The Bible teaches love, the Bible teaches kindness, and it's where I learned humility. A couple of verses before I do the last song. I wrote that song uh, that we did at the beginning that uh, that my daughter was doing um, with Spencer Green, who was uh, also there. So I just wanted you to know that. Also. Uh, we have a CD called uh, Sure of Myself, which is here. I give away more copies than I sell, but feel free to buy it if you'd like. Um, I would also like to introduce the band one more time. Mr. Steve Postel on guitar. Steve Deutsch, let's hear it. Steve Deutsch on bass. Scott Bredman on percussion. This is a new song, so I'm going to be probably looking at the lyrics a lot, so forgive me. You know, times are tough, especially around the holidays. But you know, there's one thing in the world that's good and pure, that we all love and need just to get by. Yet some folks want to take that away from us, even that. I'm not a praying man, but it might be time for me to take a moment, bow my head and send a humble request to the man in charge. Pretty please, dear President Obama, your people live in straits of dire need, in a world with so much suffering and trauma. Why spend time trying to take away our weed? We're so grateful you removed us from Iraq now. A promise kept, a little ray of hope. But we wonder if you've started using crack now. Why start a war 
on Californians smoking dope. Shepherd Fairy's poster made you look iconic and kind of trippy under ultraviolet light. But robbing brothers of their chronic seems awfully unebonic. Man, you're killing every buzz inside. Why so uptight? Mr. President, your actions have us puzzled. Wasting your powers as Commander-in-Chief. Won't you please lock up your dogs and keep them muzzled? Don't block access to our ganja and our keef. May your Christmas balls grow brassier and bolder. Cause we voting hippies just might save your ass. So in no uncertain terms, tell Eric Holder, it's time your thugs stop cutting down our grass. We loved you so, Barack Hussein Obama. But what we signed up for just isn't what we got. Go after targets like Alaki and Osama. Keep your grubby mitts off of our pot. Our dispensaries are suffering from the push, sir. Having to fight in this unnecessary feud. You're endangering our cush, sir. Don't be a jerk like W. Bush, sir. If we don't get our medicine, we're screwed. Hey, dude, you are still a shining paragon of virtue, a spark of hope in every lefty's eye. But next November, please don't make us want to hurt you. Just let your people go on getting high. If you just put a tax on it, you'd end the budget deficit from Jimmy Vallely's normal weekly pie. So, Mr. President, just let your people go on getting high. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. You better not pout. You better not cry. Better not crowd. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town.